Welcome to Revenue Innovators, the podcast powered by Outreach, where we skip the usual podcast guests and go straight to the source of true revenue innovation. We'll interview mad scientists, revenue disruptors from all kinds of surprising industries. You know, Mary, all of these folks have something in common. These are people that are looking at the future and not looking backward. And you know, when we get them on the podcast, there's going to be some hot gossip and real number talk that we push them to. We love the hot mic. Yes, we do. And we're your hosts. I'm Mary Shea, Global Innovation Evangelist at Outreach. And I'm Harish Mohan, Senior Vice President of Revenue Excellence and Operations, also at Outreach. Meet us here every week, and we promise to keep it spicy for you. So let's get to it. Welcome back, Revenue Innovators. Mary Shea, along with my co-host, Harish Mohan, here today. And we're super excited to welcome Connor Burt. So, Connor, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's so awesome. So sort of selfishly, I'm so happy to have you on the show because we know each other from prior work that we've done at Forrester. For the listeners here, Connor is a former co-founder and president of Lessonly, which is a sales readiness um, platform and solution. Recently, somewhat, not, not quite so recently, the company was acquired by Seismic. So now you're calling yourself Lessonly by Seismic. Is that accurate? That's right. That's right. And I think, Mary, I've got, I know I've said this to you off the air, but I think I've got you to thank in part for the acquisition, the ideas, et cetera, that ended up coming true. So how funny is that? It is so funny when, you know, Harish knows, you know, I, I sort of enjoy being right in my professional life and he knows like, uh, personally, it's sort of like sometimes right, never in doubt, but professionally I do, I do like making these calls. And for our listeners, I did coach Lessonly, Connor and his other co-founder and Kyle, who was the CMO at the time to lean into a potential acquisition with Seismic. And I saw how successfully it went with Grapevine 6, who was also another client of mine. And I'm just so happy how it all played out for you, Connor and the team. I mean, you know, when 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 great guys and gals and folks win, it, it makes me incredibly happy. And I think you and the whole team is so deserving of, of all the good that's come your way. Well, thank you. Thank you. And and I think you're right. The the it's been six months, but it's been really cool to see the fit, you know, organizational fit that I think you picked up on. So even sweeter, we get to keep rolling in a new capacity, which has been fun. Yeah, so you you had a chance to actually evaluate the fit as as strategic partner, right? So how long before the acquisition were you all partners? Golly, I think I first met Doug three years prior informally, and you know at the time didn't think it would be anything, and then a little nudge here and there from you to say hey, you should really partner with these folks, and you know I think as you know things in this landscape change fast, and it went from hey this is a really nice partnership working together to I think we should make a deal happen. And then, you know, off we went trying to get it done. Yeah, it's absolutely f- fantastic. So tell us, uh, before I turn uh, this over to Harish for some um, questions, tell us a little bit about your role in the new organization and how your existing collection of folks is are adjusting to the new company. Yeah, yeah. New new role is kind of general manager of the Lessonly kind of product line, though we've completely integrated the teams. It's it's kind of just making sure we keep keep the goodness going. And integration wise has been, you know, I'd say relatively swift. It was kind of a six month process. And what's kind of interesting about the combination that I didn't appreciate, maybe just something I, I found cool is that something that looked like a kind of misalignment at first ended up being a huge strength. So lessonly we really focused our business in the mid market, selling to, you know, kind of 
small or medium-sized organizations. We had 1,200 customers at time of acquisition. Seismic, on the other hand, is much more enterprise-focused, big financial services customers, et cetera. And that combination has actually been a really neat one where we take some of the strengths of the Lessonly go-to-market, we mix it with the strengths of the Seismic go-to-market, and there's not a lot of clashing in the combination. So it's been something I didn't expect and really fun because I think everybody's learning from each other and complementing each other's strengths in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's amazing. It's a bit serendipitous in terms of the go-to-market. And I know you're based in Indianapolis, correct? That's right. That's right. We've kept the Indianapolis presence is continuing to grow with, with Seismic here. Where I think we're the second largest office outside of San Diego now. And it's, it's becoming a cool place to hire for not just lessonly roles, but everything from GNA and just interesting different pool of talent here in the Midwest than they've had access to in San Diego and Boston primarily. Yeah, it is a defi- definitely a different pool of talent in the Midwest. It's a it's an easy shot down from Chicago. And we actually have our Adam Kuzart, who's in India, Indianapolis as well. And I know Harish, who did the deal on our end, spent a lot of time going going back back and forth uh, to Indiana as well. Great location. And we are investing exactly for those reasons, Connor. Great talent, untapped potential. Let's all play in that talent pool. You know, you know, Connor, just talking about your strategy and how you grew the company and, and how you look at acquisition. I mean, one of the things that you said is like, you know, as you think about strategy, like play your own game. What, what do you mean by that? You know, strategy requires playing your own game. Yeah. Slight tangent of a story there. I was in, and I'll come back to the question on actual strategy, B2B software, but I was in Scrabble Club in high school. You were popular. Little known fact. Yeah. I was, I was like, I played a lot of sports and then I was in Scrabble Club. I had like multiple identities. This is my twin brother of a different mother. I mean, we, I, I am a huge... A huge Scrabble. Were you in Scrabble Club? I was not in the club. I was in the band, so in the orchestra. So there's only so much I could do, Harish. But I play Scrabble as frequently as I can. So anyway. Well, you'll you'll appreciate this. There, the, there was this gentleman by the name of Tyler Stanich, who's become legend in my mind, that always won. And people would get so frustrated at this particular player because his strategy was to play basically short words, like four and five letter words, maybe a lot of two letter words. And it was frustrating to the other players because if you played Scrabble, it just kind of clogs up the board. Whereas everybody else in the entire game is trying to lay bingos, which is play all your tiles and play these huge words that kind of opens up the game. And every time people would get frustrated at Stanich, he, he would just mumble under his breath, play your own game because he was doing something different. And years later, after Scrabble Club and Tyler Stanich is the legend, the best player in the school, I read in like the Huffington Post that these folks who were from Thailand were starting to win the Scrabble circuit. They started this huge surge of random non-English speaking, primary English speaking folks started to win all these Scrabble tournaments. And they, they kind of dug into the strategy algorithmically and what they found was the four to five letter strategy was better than what everybody else was doing, which was these big, long bingo words. And so it's become a legend in my mind because, and play your own game. When I think about that to me in in the context of business really means you got to kind of find what's authentic to you. And in some ways, ignore the outside game that others are playing and, and kind of focus on what you're best at. So at Lessonly, for a lot, in a lot of ways, that played out over the 10-year journey where we had to say no to things that seemed obvious to a lot of other people. And we had to double down on things that might not seem obvious to other people. But it was always a kind of reminder, play your own game and be authentic. 
I love that, Connor. And, you know, being a, a recovering golf, you know, fanatic. I mean, you know, big mental game. Got to play your own game, and I never do a mental midget on the course. But when we get to, you know, I'm just curious of what you know. What is a tangible example of that, right? So when the entire market or the trend was going one way, and you were you know, probably getting pressure from investors and everybody else to get on the bandwagon, where you stayed the course, like, and how did you make that decision? Like, what was your heuristic there? Yeah. So, and this relates to revenue ops. I think here's a good example. So, so we were in broadly in the the training and learning management space for companies. So, and when you think about that space, there's 500 learning management systems that exist in the world. And in the early days of the business, the big opportunity that everyone thought was to disrupt the legacy players like Cornerstone on Demand that were selling just kind of archaic tech to HR professionals. And there was a huge market there to just make it simpler, easier to use, maybe more affordable. And so we were doing that in the first couple of years. We're selling into this HR persona. And, and this is where all the market facts came in. Like there's this huge TAM and everybody you know, thinks there's this huge disruption to be had. And what we started to see as we worked with customers is that they didn't use the product very often. It was used for compliance training primarily. And then we had this small kind of cohort of customers who was either using us in a sales team or a customer service team who used the training platform like weekly, like all the time. There's always new things to go out. And so that kind of focus shift, which we had to do over a period of years, was very unpopular in a lot of circles because there's this believed huge market. And the other two areas in sales training and customer service training we're just not as mature. Nobody saw a huge opportunity. It felt duplicative to the training software you're buying at the company level. And so our strategy there was to be what we, we said a lot at Lessonly was let's be definitive, but not abrupt. So when we're making this big strategic shift to go from HR to sales and customer service, it was literally over a period of years. And we said, okay, we're going to only create case studies and customer stories about sales and customer service customers. We're only going to push demand pages around sales and customer service. And slowly, like we didn't get rid of certain customers or we didn't weed customers out like hard no. But slowly over time, the base of customers just starts to shift. And it ended up being one of the most important strategic decisions we had to make that at the time didn't seem super obvious. And curious, right? I mean, that, that requires a lot of thoughtfulness and more importantly, it requires a lot of discipline, right? Because you're making a shift away, you're taking investment, you're putting it where you're not going to get the immediate return. How, what were, what were your leading indicators that, hey, this is the right bet? Like, how did you, how did you orchestrate the company know that this was the direction that you need to continue to pursue and not fast fail? Yeah. Two answers to that. Retention and product usage. And I think we, you know, frankly, I'm making it sound like we did this perfectly. And in hindsight, it's easy to tell the story. This is one we actually waited too long on, but started to harp on later in the company, which was who are the customers that are buying from us again? And how frequently are they using the product? And I actually think it's one of the areas, at least in our experience, and I think as I've started to get around, revenue operations in particular tends to invest in too late or invest not enough in this kind of intersection of customer operations and product operations is this area that no clear person usually owns. There's a bunch of product data in these systems and there's a bunch of customer data in Salesforce. And maybe there's a project once, or once a quarter to try and put the two together. 
But we think so much about growth and the sales side of things. But at the end of the day, like customers using your product and software, I'm talking here, and renewing year over year, that's the lifeblood of the business. If you don't get that right and have that dialed in, nothing else really matters, especially in this environment where I think we're going to see funding get a little bit tighter and funny valuations kind of go out the door. It's going to go back to some of these basics or are your customers happy and are they using your product? And I love that lens. And Connor, you hit on something that you know I'm very passionate about that most people don't talk about when they think about revenue operations is your product operations and product data. Right. So a lot of it's marketing and funnel and like all the front office stuff, but you know, getting tangible adoption usability data and building strategy on that, especially when you're in, in SaaS where it's all about NRR and growth, it, it is is kind of the pillar of what you should be you should be thinking about. And is that a playbook that you develop based on your need, or is that someone that you know you look to other industries and say, Hey, look, why aren't we doing like how did you make that connection in RevOps? Yeah, I think we were fortunate. We had a really strong investor and board member from OpenView Ventures. They're a big kind of voice of the product-led growth movement. And you know, as we started to dig into things like retention, we were trying to solve it honestly with a lot of non-product things. Like we we're always like, yeah, product you know in- impacts our retention. And their thesis was product is retention. Like you have to be building the right things and and building the right user habits to to make this work. And so what they helped us really get down to and I'd say this is at the very end. I mean, we we grew this thing for 10 years. So I'm I'm talking like we finally feel, feel like we finally got there towards the end was one or two product metrics and cohorted it so that we could see are we getting better or worse over time. So as an example, like tangibly with Lessonly, it mattered a lot. Like we knew you were going to renew with 90% confidence if you were creating at least one new lesson a month. So we maniacally focused on could we get you creating a new training each or sorry, each week. And we looked at it in a cohorted view over time to say, are we getting better? Are we getting worse? And are, are the things we're building making improving this? And that like singular focus, and there was a few other ancillary metrics, but I think it just gets so complex so fast. It's it's really a sentence of if my user uses the product in this way with this frequency, I'm X percent more likely to renew. That's the kind of insight you need to get to and then operationalize it across the business in my mind. Yeah, interesting. So Connor, where where are you in terms of the technical integration with the broader seismic platform? Because I want to I want to talk about data a little bit, but I, I first want to understand where things are in terms of the integration. Yeah, and it, well, like, I think it's a good dovetail because honestly, the thing I've been most surprised by as we've gotten into a, you know a host of joint customers is that the thing that's most valuable so far to to a customer using both seismic and lessonly as opposed to a part is that. We have a common data infrastructure and a common set of reporting. That was one of the first things we built. So we built it all on top of Snowflake. And then your seismic data and your lessonly data are in the same structure so that you can answer questions, not just about your content, but also about your training. And then you mix in CRM data to that. And now you've got kind of a comprehensive enablement story. So Product-wise, that's been huge. Uh, just kind of a single point of access type stuff for a sales rep, so you're not going into multiple system has been huge. And now we're getting into some of the more predictive stuff where we can kind of play off. We know you're using this content or this training. Let's recommend the next set of things for you, either in your customer experience or in your training and coaching experience. So that, that's kind of the third leg we're getting into now. 
So as a seller, assuming that, you know, I'm a seller and I'm using Lessonly and the traditional seismic content, we're, we're a seismic customer, by the way, I guess I can say that. And so can your solution actually, you know, based on where I am in the sales cycle and who I'm speaking to and what the industry is like, start to understand if I have a big meeting coming up, start to recommend training activities or content for me as a seller to make sure I'm ready for that next moment. That's exactly right. And Seismic, honestly, Seismic was already really good at this, better than we were. And so like things like our Salesforce integration, we've been able to say like, now it's not just recommending content, it's also recommending training. And it's really, again, that kind of single infrastructure allows us to do that in really interesting ways. So we've really just piggyback on what they've they've already kind of built in the industry, which I thought was was pretty dang good in, in that regard. But you absolutely got the concept right. That's That's exactly what the two allow you to do together. Yeah. And it, it's so much, these integrations are so much easier when you're dealing with companies that are, you know, cloud-based and relatively new companies, right? Versus dealing with some of the legacy technology of older enablement companies where you'd have to tear apart the backend system. So I'm glad to hear that things are going smoothly. What about data signals now? Are you, you know, are you sort of starting to dip your toes into the concept of, you know, starting to, to, to leverage your seismic data as well as the training data to start to impact the, the pipeline in, in deal health and forecasting? What are your thoughts there? What's the strategy? Yeah, I don't think we've gotten as far as like y'all have and, and some of the acquisitions you've done. But I'd say where we are seeing really interesting use of the combination is to make sense of why are we winning? Why are we losing deals? And what are the best reps doing? Like the lessonly data, a lot of it is telling us behaviors, skills of your sales reps, you know, and what are they doing that others aren't? And when you now combine that with how are they using content to influence the life cycle of the buyer? You can get some really interesting patterns coming out of that to really try and replicate and scale. So I'd say that's the biggest use of the data signals. It's more at the like person level and how is that impacting their performance mixed with how are you using content in the buying life cycle. So the insights that you're getting and that you're focusing on and leaning into are really helping the head of sales and your RevOps folks really understand how do I do more of what's working and less of what's not working so I can really start to scale out the impact of the good business decisions I'm making for the sales organizations versus we're now we're, we're, we're leaning more into providing that insights around the pipeline and deal management and forecasting. Yeah, also very important. Yeah, but not, not a direction we're going. And so Connor, I have to, I have to ask, right? I mean, you, you, you obviously leveraging RevOps quite a bit as you've been growing and then you know you now you service the RevOps community and when you describe it, you say, hey, revenue operations, a, a profile's gotta be like an ecologist and more importantly, RevOps Nirvana looks like a healthy wetland. Gotta gotta pick that apart. Like it would love a little bit more color on all of that. It's a unique description and I don't know if I should love it or hate it yet. Yeah, well you can tell me you can tell me after we talk about it. So, you know, you get, y'all asked kind of nirvana and wetland came to mind because first of all, I think it's something most people look at and think it's not that valuable, right? When I say wetland, I'm sure a lot of listeners are thinking about a swamp, a lot of bugs, you know, ugly mud. Gators. Gators. Yeah. Maybe gators if you're in the South. But when you kind of like take an ecologist view of a wetland, you start to see all these really important attributes that you might've missed. So there's plants that are improving water quality. There's food sources that are providing food for wildlife you never even think of. 
And so oftentimes we kind of wipe these wildlife or wetland areas away and then realize downstream there's all these effects in the ecosystem because now there's no wetland habitat. And I think that's very similar to RevOps in that A, most people underappreciate it, but B, the things and the strategic priorities of RevOps have a much broader impact on other parts of the business than you might imagine. So you try to solve one things with RevOps, like maybe we're trying to improve our win rates, right? And that's a singular focus and we're working on that really hard and our win rates start to go up because we improve our sales stages and our sales process, whatever it might be. And then downstream of that, all of a sudden, you realize you just signed up a bunch of customers you shouldn't have, retention gets hurt, and all these things are interconnected. So when I say the best RevOps practitioners are thinking like an ecologist, it's kind of this just keen observation lens where they're thinking not just about like, what's the near-term thing I'm making tweaks with or improving strategically, but how is that going to impact everything else? And I think not many folks are doing that well today, but I think that's where the nirvana state is going to go where you can kind of dial things to know, I change this and it impacts this over here. We're never going to get that perfect and we can't turn that into a complete science. But the closer we get to that, or at least philosophically think that way, I think we end up as a better organization. That is sheer poetry. I'm going to call myself a revenue ecologist going forward. That is so brilliant. I'm 100% ripping that off. I'm telling you to pull my domain. You can have it. Well, that's a great. That's a great because I'm a musicologist and ethnomusicologist. And so now you can be a revenue ecologist. I, lo- I love that. You want to get the gear as well just to play the part. You could get the gear for sure. I, I, I could see a Halloween costume next year. You're absolutely right, Connor, right? I mean, it, it, it is all the ecosystem works together. You can't solve one without the other. And while it looks dirty and ugly with data and process, like that's where that's the heartbeat of the, the operation. But I'm curious on how do you how do you take that very data structured, you know, operational focus mentality you have? And on the other hand, you're, you know, one of the things you call that is, hey, look, a lot of what we do is based on ROL, return on luck. Like, so how, how do you how do you balance out like, hey, you know, some there, there is a element of luck involved, but there's an element of practice and, and, and thoughtfulness and grow And how do you how do you put that together in your head as a leader and, and drive strategy? Yeah, that's that's a tough question, actually. Speak to the luck thing just real quick. The, my context there I just want to give is that, you know, I, I think RevOps often gets, you know, whether it's RevOps or enablement, a lot of times enablement's underneath RevOps these days. But they often get the kind of blame if the quarter doesn't go well. And they don't really get the glory if the quarter does go well. And, and my, my hypothesis is there's actually way more luck than we're willing to admit involved in making a quarter. Let's start at the very top. How do your goals get set? Like, how did your board set the goals? Were they reasonable? That's, that's a little bit lucky if you've got a good board that's setting reasonable goals. All the way down to your biggest deal came from a customer who, a champion who left as a customer, now went to somewhere else and they bought in a month and you just hit your quarter. That stuff happens all the time. And the opposite of luck is risk and risk happens to a lot of us too. And what happens when we miss a quarter, it's often, oh, we got a little unlucky, a couple of deals slip. But I don't often hear folks saying, gosh, we, we just nailed the quarter and there was a lot of luck involved in that. So th- that's kind of my, my precursor to say, I believe revenue ops helps return, build your return on luck when you get in those moments. And, and what I mean by that is RevOps help you understand why you're winning so you can do more of it. RevOps helps you understand why you're losing so you can do less of it. 
And it's kind of this keen eye on the business. It's the heartbeat of the business so that you can make the right strategic decisions going forward. And taking advantage of those moments when they're there and you, you're ready for them is, is essential because the kind of wave, the waves are, are very volatile right now, whether it's war, pandemic, like things go up, things go down. So when they're up, you got to be ready to take advantage. And when they're down, you got to be ready to adjust. So. I think it's really just a first acknowledgement, luck is involved here. And B, you're at the ready to make sure in those lucky moments you're taking advantage. I like that. And, and you know, kind of what was unsaid there and I think is kind of important is you kind of you make your luck, right? So if you have that person or that champion who left company, who's gone to company B and wants to buy some more, like, it's because you put in the work to make them a fan, right? You provided value. There was value realization. So when they go somewhere else, they want to make the same impact. And that's the behavior of make your own luck foundation has to be multiplied. And, and I, I like your lens on luck happens because sometimes, you know, to your point, we get a bank error in our favor or we get a spike in whatever we were looking for in a metric. And then we spend 10 weeks trying to figure out like, how do we replicate it? No, we just got lucky, right? There's certain elements like you can't replicate that success. So don't go, don't go try to tap this mine and go figure out how to make the broader play and accept that certain things are going to happen. I think that's actually, I think the, the key point of like, what do you do with the statement I just had? I think you just nailed it, which is there's certain things you chalk up to luck and you leave alone. And there's other things like you don't read too much into. Look, if there's, as an example, if there's, if you're looking at something and trying to extrapolate a pattern from 50 data points, like that's probably not going to tell you that much because there's not enough there. And I think oftentimes we get in this trap of we have to have an answer for everything um, and either luck or lack of data can just be, you know, you got to go with your intuition. You got to go with your gut and we got to keep moving. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to just jump in and take a moment to lean into the science a little bit because that's where I spend a lot of my time thinking about Connor. And when you think about, and I agree that, you know, luck does play a role in the world and, and you know, there's always a little bit of art that's going to lay on top of this. You can see the smoke coming out of Mary's ears right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, I believe in the art of selling, but I do believe we're in a time where we do need to lean into the science. And to build off of something you said a little bit earlier, the volatility in the world, whether it's social, whether it's economic, whether it's, you know, what we're dealing with over in Ukraine and, and all of the volatility that we're having, whether it's climate, I just don't see that stopping anytime soon. And so to me, that means that we're going to have to be very agile, like you said, lean in, lean out, lean in, lean out. And I do think that the data signals that we're able to acquire and capture from the buyer-seller interaction and the sentiment data is going to be absolutely essential as you start to think about managing healthy your deals, your pipelines, and your forecasts. So great. I, I, like, I like the luck and I'll take it when I play horseshoes, but when I uh, commit my forecast, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the data. I'm going to go with the data friend, if that's okay. That is fair. Yeah. No, but I mean, we, we, we don't all agree on the show and that's why it's great to have diverse folks and diverse thinking. I want to shift the conversation to go a little bit more into culture because I know from the previous work that we've done together, Connor, that culture is something that's very important to you in terms of creating your own company, leaving a mark on the world that's uh, positive. Tell us a little bit about how you built such an amazing culture at Lessonly and, and how that's fitting into the broader uh, Seismic family. Yeah. Yeah, you know, people ask this a lot. It's, it's a hard question to answer. I think the first thing I would say is it didn't happen. It wasn't, it wasn't ingrained from day one. You know, when Max and I started the company, you know, the culture was, I guess, the two of us. And then, you know, we had a team of five and 10. And, you know, the culture is kind of 
just whoever the people we hired are. And then all of a sudden we wake up one day and we're at 50 employees and we thought to, you know, like, hey, we really need to codify this and formalize it. So a couple of things I think we did, fortunately, that, that worked for us. Obviously, I think putting intention into it is step one, but give credit to, to Max, who's my partner at Lessonly. Literally kind of, I wouldn't say went away from his CEO duties for nine months, but you know, really took a back seat to the CEO duties for nine months and wrote a book on our core values. So the book was meant to be something anyone could read. It's called Do Better Work, and it has some principles in it. Uh, but the principles that he wrote about were each of our core values. We had seven or eight of them. And so what was interesting is as soon as we wrote that book, the culture kind of got codified in those values. You could read the stories, you could read the anecdotes, and you could figure out how do I make this a part of my day-to-day working environment. And I think before that, you know, people interpret things differently, right? Like we had a value, have difficult conversations. Like people think they know what that means, but there's a lot of variations of that and people can go about having a difficult conversation in very different ways. And so we were very prescriptive to say, there's a way I think we can do this in a healthy manner. And that was written in the book. So every new employee could read it and they could feel it. So that, that's just one thing I, you know, I don't think we had that intention when we did it. Like it was kind of a just happened in retrospect, but it, man, it just doesn't have to be a book necessarily, but there does have to be some very tangible meat to the core values that you're explaining to the team that you want to show up. Yeah. So it sounds to me like just intentionality, whether it's a book or a paper or even just a blueprint or framework, just having the intentionality around it. I know we have to wrap up soon, but I can't let the conversation go. I can't let you go without talking a little bit about your commitment to teachers. So as as you know, I have two siblings actually who are were in various stages of transitioning out of uh, being public school teachers. My brother is third grade, my sister is middle school, and there's a lot going on in the world that's made it very, very challenging for that profession. But you've actually brought a lot of former teachers into your organization. And I'd love to hear how that's gone, why you felt compelled to do that, and how what kind of skills transition well to your company. Yeah, and I, th- I think for context, we had about 250 to 300 teammates by the, at the time of acquisition. And I would say about 10% were either teachers or former administrators. And I think I would say uniquely, I think Lessonly has a training and a learning kind of component to the solution we bring. So that I think attracted teachers to us. But what we noticed after we started to hire the teachers we did, and you know, when I count the list of all stars on the team, like many of those were teachers. I think first of all, they just have an incredible work ethic that they're used to, you know, you can't half-ass it, excuse my language, in a in a classroom and they know that. And I think they bring that with them to the tech world. But they have this flexibility that they've never had that I think the second thing I've noticed is just extreme gratitude and appreciation. If you have a quality work environment where it's flexible and you can do life and you can do work and work really hard, they just think they just have this like gratitude and appreciation that you don't always get hiring someone who's worked at five tech companies in the past and maybe is a little bit jaded because we don't have the best snacks. You know, and so I think that's huge. No dry cleaning. Dry cleaning. That's new to me. <laughs> so, yeah. And then, and then I think like, obviously, a th- it's, it might be obvious, but a thirst to learn, learn is, is the third. And that's what makes it easy to onboard teachers where they get it. Like they can dive in and teach themselves and 
figure out what they need to that makes them really great in client success roles in training roles even sometimes account management and sales like they're quick to learn and that's huge yeah i agree with everything you said and you know it, it just talking to my sister she's she's like well teachers just get shit done that's what that's what we do and usually there's not a lot of drama with it so anyway thank you for sharing that and thank you for offering a a place to land for a number of teachers that are looking to transition out of that profession and thanks for your time today we we loved having you and it's just always great to have great humans on the show and you certainly are one so thank you so much for joining us today hey my pleasure this was fun Thank you for listening to the Revenue Innovators Podcast. We want to keep the show really relevant and we want to hear from you. Tell us what you like most or what you'd like to hear by leaving us a rating and a review. But of course, we are partial to the number five. And if you're a revenue innovator and are not part of the Sales Hacker community yet, you're missing out. Go to saleshacker.com and become a member, ask questions, get fast answers, and share experiences with 20,000 like-minded professionals who are shaking up things in their own organizations. Thanks, Sarish. So we'll see you all back here on this podcast every other week, where you'll learn from the world's most disruptive revenue innovators. 